Beloved congregation of the Lord, turn with me again to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. As we continue our series through this great epistle of 1 Peter, it may be helpful to reflect on some of our recent uh, sermons on the matter of Roman Catholicism. We've considered a number of those in the course of our series through the Heidelberg Catechism, how it is that the devil sought to deceive and to destroy the Christian church through various terrible errors and heresies. We consider, didn't we, the abomination of the Popish Mass with its substitution of the Lord's Supper for a terrible idolatry. And we considered also the terrible false teaching that it is the Pope who is the vicar of Christ in the head of the church. And we saw how many pernicious errors flowed out of those terrible um, distortions of the word of God. But where we would uh, consider those, they cannot be abstracted from a particular notion in the Roman Catholic system of a sacerdotal priesthood, of a new covenant priesthood, which is essential to the administration of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in our time. And so these verses that we've just read in, in verse 5, concerning unholy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices, the Roman Catholic would argue, you see, that is what this is referring to. This is referring to the Roman Catholic priests with their magical ability to present the body and divinity of Christ upon the altar of the Mass, the ability to forgive sins, and so forth. Well, what would we say in response to this? Well, I'm sure that as we've been working through First Peter, a number of things have occurred to you. The general thrust of this whole epistle is very clearly what is given to all believers in Jesus Christ. And the way the, the epistle begins back in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, you notice in verses 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered about Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Very clearly, the audience is all believers who have a like salvation through the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You continue on and you notice that all the exhortations are of a general nature, applicable to all Christians. In Verse 14 and 15 of chapter 1, as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, 
But as he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. Not only so, but as you read chapter 2 and 3, you notice that without any change in the intended audience, Peter addresses different groups, women and slaves and husbands and so forth, different categories of Christians. And there are not unique categories given to the leaders of the church until the fifth chapter, where there Peter will address himself not to priests, but to the elders which are among you, chapter 5 and verse 1. Indeed, this, like any other case in which the Roman Catholic system is concerned, is a clear distortion of the word of God. And the great reformer Calvin spoke about it very directly in his institutes. He said it was a sacrilege in them to abrogate to themselves alone what is given to the whole church and proudly to glory in a title of which they had robbed the faithful. He even sort of mocks the practice of some of those priests, indeed the standard practice up until the 20th century, for the priests in order to have the appearance of a royal priesthood, as it's called in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, they would actually shave the top of their heads in order that their, the rest of their hair would have the appearance of a crown. Again, something not founded on the word of God, but something that tended to engender a kind of superstition among the people. It was, you see, a great legacy of the Reformation which recovered the biblical doctrine of the priesthood of all believers. What had so corrupted Christianity was the idea that Christianity, piety, worship, godliness, that these were, be, were to be sequestered away in a monastery, that really a professional class of persons was to be concerned with them, while the rest of humanity were not holy, were not sacred, were not called to be godly, and so often gave themselves unto the lusts of their, of their age. This, I tell you, is indeed a precious inheritance, that all Christians are accounted by the word of God here, not only as a temple, as we've seen, as a spiritual house, but also as a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices. With the Lord's help, I hope to consider this doctrine of the priesthood of believers the priesthood of believers. And we will consider two things concerning this. First, consecration. And second, calling. First, consecration. And second, calling. Well, children, if you've uh, read anything in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament scriptures, you know that among the people of Israel... The priests were a very important group. This was a special job that was limited to special individuals. 
you had to be a man. You had to be of the tribe of Levi. And you had to be set apart to a very specific work, to a job. What did this consist in? Well, it was a job that consisted in representing all the people unto God in their worship and in representing God in their worship to the people. So they represented the people to God and they represented God to the people where the worship was concerned. Where things like the offering of sacrifices upon the altar, animal bloody sacrifices, God required it as a testimony of their sinfulness, of their ceremonial uncleanness. And so it had to be done by a priest. Where it concerned the special rituals and worship to be taking place in the temple of God. These were connected with the priests, with the ritual washings, which, with the ritual incense, with, which the, with the ritual showbread, and so forth. All of it was connected. All of it was very complicated. All of it was very glorious and beautiful. And the whole point of it all was to testify of the magnificent holiness and grace of God to the people. And in order that God would be pleased with the worship that he himself had commanded. There was also perhaps this in it. It was to teach all of the Israelites the special way in which they related to the other nations of the world. You know, of course, that there were many other nations throughout all the different people groups who did not worship the true God. However, much they may be descended from Noah and from Adam originally, they drifted away from the true worship. And so it was to be the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, who in particular would show what a truly holy people were. And so in Exodus 19, God speaks of the whole nation as a kind of priestly nation. Exodus 19, verse 4, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me, above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So if you were in Israel, you were to look at a priest and you were to see as a kind of model about what you were to be, not only in your worship, but in every area of life. Well, we know how that went. Indeed, there were times in which the people of God, the Israelites, lived up to their holy calling and covenant, and other times where they broke covenant with God and indeed brought great judgments upon themselves as we considered this morning. Yet it was the coming of the new covenant 
that was pictured as a time where this model of priesthood would prevail, not only among a specific class and not only among the generality of the people of the Jews, but far broader, even among the other people groups. In Isaiah 61, verse 6, there we read, Ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in their glory shall ye boast yourselves. This is referring to the glories of the new covenant and that which Peter himself recognizes has been realized, has come with the advent of the Lord Jesus, with his atoning death and poured forth spirit. This era of spiritual priesthood has been realized. This is also what Matthew Henry uh, comments so well is something that every Christian can connect with. Every Christian has this as their legacy, as their heritage, and as their identity. He writes, all good Christians are a holy priesthood. The apostle speaks here of the generality of Christians and tells them they are a holy priesthood. They are all select persons, sacred to God, serviceable to others, well-endowed with heavenly gifts and graces, and well-employed. Children, I hope you understand that. You don't have to be a man to be a priest. You don't even have to be a boy or an adult to be a priest. Any boy or girl even can be a priest unto God if they are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. An incredible privilege and honor. Most special is this identity of the Christian. You are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. This is the first thing I would speak about, the consecration of this priesthood. You know, for the people who are old covenant priests, like we read about in the book of Leviticus, they had to be set apart for seven whole days for all the rituals, all the sacrifices to take place, for them to be completely consecrated, completely set apart as holy unto the Lord. But there's also a process whereby a sinner becomes a holy priest unto the Lord. This consecration must be a reality for anyone if they would claim the title of Christian, claim the title of this holy priesthood. The first thing that we would see is that it is in Christ in Christ, that we are so consecrated as priests. That's what indeed the verse says. And holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. We considered last time in this series 
how Christ is the cornerstone to which we all as living stones must take our shape around if we are to be the true temple of the Lord. So also, if we are to be true priests, we achieve this consecration, this being set apart through and in Jesus Christ. Maybe, children, you know a story connected with this whole matter of priesthood related to a man by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, that's kind of an interesting name, isn't it? And maybe you know that in Genesis chapter 12, that a terrible king by the name of Chedolamer had uh, actually um, kidnapped Lot, one of Abraham's nephews, and together with all his family. And Abram, he had to rescue his nephew. And he had to do war against those kings. And he accomplished a great victory. And there was a man by the name of Melchizedek, who was not only a king in the land of Salem, but also a priest unto the Most High God. He was there sent by the Lord in order to comfort Abraham with bread and with wine. And he blessed Abraham and he received from Abraham a tithe. Well, I mention all this, of course, because it was this story that the psalmist used to make reference to our Lord Jesus Christ in the 110th Psalm. Verse 5, the Lord has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, the only priest that we have to be concerned with is not a priest in Rome who claims to be the head of the church, nor any priest who would answer to his nefarious false teaching. Indeed, the only peculiar, special priesthood resides first and foremost in the Lord Jesus Christ. He received a priesthood, not because he was of the tribe of Levi, not because he received it from the ordinances given to Moses, no, but immediately from God, just like that man Melchizedek received his priesthood immediately from God, being a, a priest of the Most High God. And he comes on the scene to Abram and, and testifies of the goodness of God. And we don't see a great genealogy linking him to other priests. So it also is with Jesus Christ. He was made a priest forever at the command and will of his father. So the apostle to the Hebrews mentions this in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8. Though he were a son, yet he le learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of an eternal salvation unto all that obey him. Called of God to be in high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
And the apostle speaks more about this in the seventh chapter of Hebrews, verse 24. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. And the whole book of Hebrews really contrasts him Jesus as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek in contrast to all those old other priests. Really the sum of it is summed up very well in our Heidelberg Catechism in question 31. Why is he called anointed? That is Christ. And among other things it says because he's ordained of God the Father and ordained by the Holy Ghost to be our only high priest, who by the one sacrifice of his body hath redeemed us and makes continual intercession with the Father for us. Here is the first thing that we must understand. The only priesthood which the New Testament recognizes is that which resides in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only high priest of the people. It is he who laid down his life as a sacrifice for sins once for all upon the cross. It is he who ever lives to intercede for his people, praying for them moment by moment. It is he and only he who represents God to the people and the people unto God. He is the mediator of the new covenant, the one mediator between God and man. No one, no one can claim to be consecrated as this holy priesthood requires except through and in him. But I don't say that there's nothing we can't learn from that Old Covenant priesthood, though it was of a different type than the New Covenant priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, yet the one pointed to the other. Children, maybe sometimes you've gone outside and there's a bright shining outside of the sun and it shines upon you and there you see a long shadow is cast onto the ground. And you look at it, and it sort of takes the shape of yourself, right? There are your arms, there's your head, and so forth. Well, that's like the old covenant priesthood of Aaron and the Levites and so forth. We look at that, and we see a faint picture of the priesthood which Christ himself has, and which, in a way, he also bestows to Christians. And what this concerns in the first place, we'll see, is Cleansing, cleansing. Maybe you recalled that where it was that Aaron, Moses' brother, at the command of the Lord, was consecrated to be this priest, together with his sons Nahab and Abihu. We read in Leviticus 8, verse 6, and Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Well, sometimes, children, maybe you think that you really need a bath and you need to be cleansed from the filth that's on you. Well, it wasn't the case that Moses or the Lord just thought 
that um, Aaron and his sons just needed a bath before they could be priests. No, that wasn't the point. There was a defilement on them that went much deeper than just the filth of the body. No, indeed. They, together with all sinners, are filthy on the inside. That's what God sees, where he looks upon me and you and everyone and ourselves. We are filthy on the inside. Polluted thoughts, polluted actions, polluted words. Sin is filthy unto God. And God, being holy, hates sin. And so this, together with the rest of all those rituals of the Old Covenant, they were designed to show that there had to be cleansing if you were to be consecrated unto the worship of God in his priesthood. Well, it's no different today. Do you want to be a priest unto the Lord? Do you want to be a true Christian? Well, you need cleansing. Listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 21. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful which promised. Why is it talking about the washing of bodies with water? Well, there could indeed be some connection with baptism. Indeed, you know, children, don't you, that anyone who joins the Christian church, they are washed with water. And maybe that is part of the connection. The washing of water in baptism is a similar spiritual lesson to the washing of the priests under the old covenant. Indeed, there might be a foreshadowing of it. But the ultimate fulfillment, you see, is the washing of that can only be done by Jesus Christ himself. This washing is not only with water, but with the precious blood of the Savior. This is what Jesus um, is mentioned concerning in Revelation 1, Verses 4 and 5. Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God. And his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How is it that Jesus Christ makes us kings and priests? Not through the washing just of water, but what our baptism points to. The washing of our souls through his precious blood. You notice that was also part of the rituals with the uh, consecration of the old covenant priest. There had to be blood applied to him, not only water, but blood, both of them pointing to this true cleansing, 
which only the death of Jesus on the cross can give to any sinner. Hebrews 9, verses 13 to 14. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You know, it's a terrifying thing to contemplate. There are people who busy themselves with their religious activities, go through all the motions of professing Christianity. And however much they may rise to positions of leadership in the church, their service is but a stench in the nostrils of God, except that they have applied to them by faith the blood and death of Jesus Christ. No one, it does not matter how much you give to the poor. It does not matter how much you think you love others. It does not matter how much you think you love God. If you have not the blood of Jesus applied unto you, his atoning sacrifice, his cleansing death, suffering as the sin bearer in the place of sinners, if he is not applied unto you by faith in his bloody death, in his bloody cross, none of it is acceptable unto God. Would you be sanctified and set apart, consecrated unto the living God? Here is what you need. You need the blood. You need the blood of Jesus Christ applied by the Spirit of God unto your soul, received in true faith, received as your only salvation. Here is the first thing whereby Christ consecrates us as a holy priesthood. But this as well we would speak about also anointing. Anointing. Maybe that struck you children as you heard about how Aaron and his sons were consecrated to be priests. What had to happen was they had to have oil poured upon their head. In Leviticus 8 verse 12, and he that is Moses poured the anointing oil upon Aaron's head and anointed him to sanctify him. I'm sure you know that, children. Whether you were set apart to be a king or a priest or a prophet in the Old Covenant, you had to have the special anointing with oil unto that special office. Why this oil? Why do we sing, for example, in Psalm 23, he anointeth my head with oil. Well, you see, there is an anointing that that oil points towards. An anointing with the Holy Spirit of Christ. This is what our catechism explains so well in question 32. But why art thou called a Christian? That is, why are you called an anointed one. That's what Christian means, after all. 
Answer, because I am a member of Christ by faith and thus am partaker of his anointing. And so I may confess his name and present myself a living sacrifice of thanksgiving to him. And also that with a free and a good conscience, I might, I might fight against sin and Satan in this life. And afterwards, I reign with him eternally over all creatures. You see, going back to what we had first said, in order that we would receive the anointing to be priests, we need to receive the anointing that Christ received. After all, he is called Christ, the anointed one. He is anointed to be our great high priest, but not merely with oil, but with a great anointing of the Spirit of God. Thus it says in John 3, verse 36, God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. That is, without measure, a great deluge of the Holy Spirit was poured forth upon Christ in order that he would be gifted with all of the gifts of God in order to be our high priest. But where we are engrafted to him by faith, we partake of the same anointing. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, the apostle writes there, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. And ye need not that any man teach you goes on on that vein and why is it that John knows that the false teachers will not prevail against his audience because they have the anointing from Christ the anointing unto this holy priesthood not just with oil but with the Holy Spirit they are endowed with the Holy Spirit because they are in Christ so much in 1 John continues on that vein, not always with the same word, anointing, but always with the same concept. 1 John 2, verse 20, But ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. 1 John 3, verse 24, And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. There is the cleansing with the blood of Christ, but also the anointing with the spirit of Christ, the blood and the spirit. Each one of these are involved in the great creation of the Christian, the consecration unto this holy priesthood. Not only that our sins are blotted out with his blood and we reckon righteous in the sight of God, but that we are empowered with the Spirit. He changes our thinking. He changes our emotions. He changes everything in our lives when we are anointed with the Spirit. Here's the last thing, and really it flows from the others, the ennobling. The ennobling, simply children, that means making noble. And when someone is noble, they are 
respectable. They have a special place that deserves honor. And this is so much of what's involved in the old covenant priests that we see in Leviticus 8, verse 7. Again, we read, And he that is Moses put upon him the coat and girded him with the girdle and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod upon him. And he girded him and the curious girdle of the ephod and bound it onto him therewith. So you understand that the ephod is sort of like an apron and the girdle is kind of like a belt and and together with that is the coat. And so you see there's a very elaborate set of clothing that is to be put on him. It goes on in verse 8. And he put the breastplate upon him. Also he put in the breastplate the urim and the thummim. And children, maybe you know that. Those were special bright stones which the Lord used to communicate unto the priests in order for special matters of judgment to be resolved. It goes on in verse 9. And he put on the meter, the turban, upon his head. And also upon the turban, even upon his forehead, did he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. You compare this with Exodus 28, verse 36. And you know upon that crown was written in great letters, Holiness to the Lord. What is unmistakable about this person? You would look at a priest and you would say, here is someone special. All of these ornaments, all of these clothing which the Lord has made in intricate detail as you read about it in Exodus and Leviticus and so forth. It is that this is a special person. And I love what Matthew Henry writes concerning this. This all typified that is pointed towards the decency of Christians who are spiritual priests. All believers are clothed with the robe of righteousness and girt with the girdle of truth, resolution, and close application. And their heads are bound as the word here is with the diadem of beauty, the beauty of holiness. You know, sometimes a Christian can be very discouraged by a great many things about themselves, by our failures, by our sins, by our shortcomings, by the cruelty of others, by the uh, hardness that they experience in this world, by the affliction and the different troubles that they encounter in this veil of tears. But I would have you to know, Christian, Every believer here is precious unto the Lord. The Lord has called you unto greatness. The Lord has called you unto honor, unto privilege, unto a decent and a great calling. The angels of heaven would delight to be called priests. This is denied them. The greatest of rulers this world has ever known the most prestigious of religious leaders, if they be false religious leaders, they have this title denied them. The holy 
priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ is committed unto you. It is given graciously unto the praise of his glorious grace. It is not that you are to take pride in this as though you are anything but you are to glory in the Lord who has so called you unto such a holy, glorious calling. And you have no right to disparage yourself as though you would say that your life is worthless or not worth living or meaningless to anyone or anything. No, holiness unto the Lord. Astonishing that the worms of this world, the, the traitors and the sinners, should be elevated to such a high place of dignity. Something that testifies of his magnificent mercy, of his astonishing condescension, that he should ennoble the likes of you and I with this holy calling. Let us not protest against him. Let us simply say, Thy will be done, O Lord. May your will be done in me. And so that would bring us to the second consideration, also the final consideration, not only the consecration of the Christian, this holy priesthood, but the calling, the calling. You notice how it is that is spoken of here in First Peter 2 and verse 5, and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. I want you to imagine what an astonishing dignity it was afforded unto the lay Christian and the lay woman once they were told firmly from the mouth of faithful Reformation preachers that the Bible does not say that only People who serve in a special office in the church are holy. Not just people who administer the Lord's Supper are holy. No, far from it. But all have a holy calling. Your life is meaningful. Your job and calling, whatever it may be, is holy unto the Lord. In his treatise to the Christian nobility of the germination, the great preacher Martin Luther declared all Christians whatsoever really and truly belong to the religious class. And there is no difference among them except insofar as they do different work. And I hope as we unfold something of this that you'll understand this. If you are called to an office in the church, whether a minister or an elder or a deacon, you can praise God for them. But it's not as though those who are not so called are not called unto a sacred office. No, every Christian in the office of all believers has a sacred office and calling, which the Lord expects you to carry out in the power of Christ's blood and anointing of his spirit. So listen to some of the things that we are to concern ourselves, fellow priests. In point one, I would point this, worship, worship. That's certainly the key part of this. 
We read in Psalm 141, verse 2, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. What were all of those rituals, all that incense, all of those sacrifices pointing towards surely this, the spiritual worship offered by the Lord's people, also under the new covenant. Do not think that as you pray, Christian, as you get up early before you go to work and you set aside times of devotion in order to pray unto the Lord that this is a small thing, No, a sweet aroma rises up unto the throne room of heaven. One of the Lord's people, one for whom Christ died and endowed his spirit, is offering true worship. Wherever the Lord's people worship in spirit and in truth, there the priesthood is exercised. There the name of God is glorified. In Malachi chapter 1, Verse 11, speaking of the coming of the new covenant, we read of this. Malachi 1, verse 11, For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles, all nations, and in every place incense shall be offered unto my name in a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. Is it not a, the case, fellow priests of the Lord Jesus Christ, that as we come into this place for gathered worship, this is the highlight of our week, this is the market day of the soul, as our fathers said, this is the time in which we enter into the very holy of holies, the very presence of God, and have that foretaste of heaven, whereby we consider the glories of the world to come and commune with the very God of heaven and earth. This is something that we ought to take seriously, the true worship of God. All of life should be subordinated unto this. Worship in the church, the gathered congregation. Worship in the family. Worship in the individual. Nothing else takes priority over this. Setting aside time according to the commandment of the Lord to worship God. This is something that every Christian is involved with. So it must be active. It must be done in faith. It must be done with thought. It must be done with attention. It must be done with the power of the Spirit. Oh, I'm sure we pray, don't we? that the Lord would send his spirit upon gatherings like this, that he would send his spirit upon all of the families in our congregation, every Christian, that they'd be endowed with the spirit of God to truly bring glory unto the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. This is what is needful, that we would glorify our God as priests in worship. But not only so, but also in good works. We speak about these spiritual sacrifices, not only specifically in worship, but also generally in our good works. Listen to the epistle to the Hebrews again in Hebrews 13, verse 15. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. What we've already said, worship. 
but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Don't just be content with being a one-day-of-the-week Christian, but throughout the week adorn your life with spiritual sacrifices of good works. So it is spoken in Psalm 50, verse 23, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation or life aright will I show the salvation of God. What a glorious thing it is to repent from dead works and serve the living God in true obedience, yielding ourselves unto him, giving ourselves utterly unto his will and good service also as we serve and bless one another. Isn't it spoken in the great beatitude from the lips of Christ himself? Matthew 5 and verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, as true priests, bringing a kind of peace about all of our relationships, forgiving one another, being kind to one another, mending frayed relationships, serving for the unity of the bond of peace. This is the true heritage of the children of God, of the blessed, of the holy priesthood to which we are called. And what is the sum of the matter? That all of life, everything that we are, it's all to be set apart in this holy priesthood. Romans 12 and verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. I think Matthew Henry comments very well here. This holy priesthood must and will offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. The spiritual sacrifices which Christians are to offer are their bodies, souls, affections, prayers, praises, alms, and all other duties. Whatsoever you do, no matter what your calling may be, whether in your job, in your family, in your daily occupation, everything that you do in the service of the Lord, if it is consecrated unto him, it is a sweet-smelling aroma unto him. All lawful callings are equal in the sight of God as they concern the acceptable service of Christians, of the spiritual priesthood. Do not think that any duty which you have, anything which the Lord has placed in your corner in this coming week is a small thing, an indifferent thing, an inconsequential thing. No, dear Christian, the road which the Lord has in store for you, all of the responsibilities, all of the toil, all of the sweat, all of the tears, all of the temptations and all of the trials, it is appointed for you as part of an epic calling to bring glory unto the Lord as you do so faithfully in true repentance from sin and in true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, we have to close with him, can't, shouldn't we? All things through Christ. He, our glorious high priest, resides over all. We must hold fast unto our confession, fellow 
fellow believers. We have been called unto greatness, unto dignity, and unto glory. And as we do so through the strength that Jesus Christ supplies, through his finished work and outpoured spirit, we shall do valiantly. Amen.